In this episode of Stars for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about our biggest regrets, feelings of isolation, the impact of management tasks on deep work, and more listener questions. This is Stars for the Rest of Us, episode 444. Welcome to Startups for Restless, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Mike. And I'm definitely not sick today. <laughs> and we are here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's the word this week? Uh, definitely not sick today. Yeah. So I'm as bad as this sounds, and as much as I hope not to be a pain in our listeners' ears, I actually feel better today than I did yesterday and the day before. So you know how sometimes the voice... The voice stuff lags with actually feeling bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's how it is right now. Like I'm not 100% for sure, but definitely able to record a podcast. I just don't know if my voice is going to hold. So at a certain point, I, I may just drop off and be like, I don't know, Mike, you answer the questions. I'm just going to mute you and like I'll replace you with a, uh, a text-to-speech converter or something like that. Yes, that would be that would, that would be great. But the show must go on. Am I right, Mike? I, I suppose it does. <laughs> the show must go on. So for me this week, I'm excited. MicroConf Europe tickets are on sale. It's in lovely Dubrovnik, Croatia, again, at that amazing hotel where every room has an ocean view. It's in late October. MicroConfEurope.com has uh, the full details. Although I just looked at it and the speakers are last year's speakers. So we'll have to get that that corrected. But uh, we haven't selected any speakers yet. But no, that'll be a, uh, a good show. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to going back there. Although I do remember thinking to myself that because the hotel is built into like a cliff on right against the uh, the ocean, my engineering days came back to me as like, oh, I wonder what like would happen or what it would take for the whole thing to like fall into the ocean. But <laughs> I'm hoping that they've thought of that. And way to go, Mike. Five people just decided not to come because of what you said. I, I think they've thought of that. And as far as I know, they don't have earthquakes there. I mean, you would never build something like that in California. Or if you did, you'd really have uh, you'd have a lot of supports and such seismic stuff. Well, I mean, those are the, like for whatever reason, like my brain just kind of like goes to those types of things, whether it's like a plane or, you know, a giant bridge or something like that. I, I just think I remember one time my wife and I were driving back from Massachusetts to New York because that's where my family is. And there's this bridge that goes over the Hudson where we stopped on the bridge because traffic was just so bad. So we are at a complete standstill and the bridge is like popping up and down, like not a lot, but it was like four, five, six inches, something like that. But you could feel it. The entire car was just like bouncing up and down a little bit. And all I could think of is that video from grade school or, or from high school where they show you this bridge that basically just rips itself apart in California. It was in Washington. Was it Washington? Okay. Yeah. Seattle. Yeah. Or that area, oh, yes, the, Washington area. Yeah. The Seattle Sound, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's just, it came to mind. So for whatever reason, like these giant structures like that, that's all I can kind of think of sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I find as as software engineers, oftentimes you're trying to think of everything that could go wrong. And when you transfer that into life, sometimes it's not a, such an adaptive quality. And frankly, it pisses your spouse off because I, Sherry will suggest things, hey, let's go do this. And I'm like, oh, here's six things that could go wrong with that. And she's like, yeah, that's actually not helpful. How about instead of that, you go on and you uh, select an Airbnb and book our plane tickets. <laughs> so... What else though? You uh, you had a webinar last week, right? Yeah, I had a webinar. It was a couple of days ago and I went a little bit longer than I thought I would. I thought it was going to come in around 40 minutes and came, ended up coming around around 50, 55, just because I went into more depth on a couple of things than I had probably originally expected to. But it was 
pretty good. We had, I think there was 46 or 48 people who registered for it. So I've got their contact information and the list that I got was, it also included like their company names, their job titles, where they're located, the size of the companies, a lot of interesting things there. So definitely adding those people into my mailing list and working from there. So but it was, it was fun. I, I definitely do it again. It's just a question of, you know, whether or not they would have me and whether it's applicable to the audience still. Yeah. Now that makes sense. Did you get any, you got positive feedback or did you get much feedback? Very little feedback. There was like one person who submitted feedback out of the people who attended. So there's, I also got information about like who attended and who didn't. So then there's emails that go out to them afterwards to send them the links to the video. And I got a copy of the video as well. So, but yeah, it's typical webinar stuff. Right. Yeah. We did a bunch of webinars in the early days of Drip and some of them we found worked really well and others were complete busts and wastes of time. So I'm I'm curious to hear. And you don't know for another week or another month, you know, depending on who sticks around and listens and who uh, basically stops reading your emails or, or whatever, you know, other way you contact them. So curious to hear if it, if you, you know, figure it's worth your time and maybe two or three weeks, I think you'll have a decent sense of that. Definitely. So the other thing I've been looking at lately is uh, I've been testing out a new email client called Mailbird. And you and I talked about this very briefly before the podcast and we decided to talk about it on the podcast. But I find that most of the time I look at my email through Google Chrome and I have most of my different emails from different domains forwarded in there. So I just have one the one email client. And I liked, uh, I was looking at Mailbird just because it has like a, a unified mailbox where you can see and view all of your emails in one place, regardless of what like IMAP servers are coming from and what domains are coming from, et cetera. So I can see everything there and I don't have to, I'm not going to have to forward things over if I don't want to, but I could, I could continue doing that. But the one problem I've had with that is that mail servers tend to rewrite the headers if it's forwarded in an email and then they no longer, the SPF, I think it's the SPF records like are no longer valid because it's basically being rewritten. So it no longer matches the original, which isn't a big deal because I'm the one receiving them, but it still screws up like the reporting stats that I get on a weekly basis about my sent emails. So, but you said you were testing out something else as well. What's that and why? Yeah. So Mailbird, I can't use cause I'm on Mac. It's windows only. I was going to check it out. I was just on the site, but I, I straight up Googled, you know, best Mac Gmail client because I like Gmail. I like the paradigm of it. And it's so slow in my Chrome browser now um, where I will go to type an email and I will literally, you know, I know all the keyboard shortcuts. So I'm like, label this as that and then type five words and it's catch, it's playing catch up with me and it's getting worse and worse. So I know everyone's thinking superhuman, go use superhuman. And yes, I, I will check them out at some point. But I really wanted to consider going back to a, a desktop client, both for the speed and just the kind of the native feel. But I found an app called Mailplane. It's like an airplane, P-L-A-N-E. And it basically mimics the Gmail interface in a desktop desktop wrapper, in essence. And there's also a calendar that you can flip back and forth. At first, I really struggled with the fact that it wasn't just a tab in the browser. But now I'm starting to get, I'm starting to like it. I have it in a completely separate monitor than my browser. And when I click a link, it opens in the browser on the other side instead of opening in a new tab and throwing me out of Gmail if I'm not holding command down to open a new tab. So I actually started liking the workflow. I like that all the keyboard shortcuts are the same. I label things constantly. I archive things constantly. I delete things and I snooze or boomerang them. Those are the four most important things I do. And of course I compose and, and send. But those four things have to be super fast. They have to be keyboard shortcuts. And I do that both on mobile and on 
on my desktop in essence. So Mailplane, the one place where it falls down is it doesn't have the snooze keyboard shortcut, which is B. And I can't install Boomerang on it, which also has the B keyboard shortcut. So I may bail on it and go back to the drawing board and try out, you know, something like Airmail or I know Spark's good or take a look at Superhuman. I've kind of struggled with wanting to do Superhuman. I mean, I, I think some of the hype drives me away from it and also 30 bucks a month, obviously, you know, I could afford that, but it, I str- struggle to pay that for something, which is so, it's so stupid because I'm in my inbox constantly. And if it saves me any amount of time, it will pay for itself in a day. I think it's probably the uh, the price anchoring you have to Gmail, which has been free for 15 years now. And you're like, oh, I don't want to pay 30 bucks a month for something like that, you know? Yeah. And it's also, I know I'm going to have to relearn a bunch of, key- or I'm expecting to relearn a bunch of keyboard shortcuts. And while I can totally do that, you know, and I switched from Windows to Mac and that was a complete trucking of my productivity at the time. Like, but I got over, right? It took me two, three, four weeks and I was good. And I'm sure that if I switched to superhuman, it would be it would be all good. But I also kind of want to let the product mature a little bit and see what direction it heads. Because every time I do this switch, I'm always kind of wary that like, oh, here they go. They got acquired and now they shut them down, which has happened with like three of the mobile clients I've used, email clients. Or they themselves start getting slow over time or things go wrong with the business model and they start showing a bunch of ads, whatever. It's just like I almost, I know they're charging 30 bucks a month. So that should mean that A, they shouldn't get shut down, you know, an aqua hired, right? And B, they're not going to do ads. So all the objections I've actually brought up are probably not going to happen. But I, I just, I often don't trust these Silicon Valley startups in these early days because you just don't know what's going to happen. And I don't want my whole world to be invested in this single app that is quite disruptive to leave. Well, two, two things here. One is I, I was looking at the Mailplane app website, and there is something there that says flat out that they support Boomerang for as a third-party extension. So there might be a way to like basically add that into the app itself, maybe as a plugin or extension or something like that. But the other thing is that it's interesting that you and I are probably on the same page there is where just because it's a Silicon Valley startup and they've got funding, we actually put less emphasis on them being a viable products versus like the bootstrap company companies where the large companies say, hey, I'm not going to trust you because, you know, where's your funding? You might go out of business tomorrow versus like, I almost feel like the Silicon Valley startups, actually, it's the opposite. That's just the way I view it. It seems like you feel the same way about this. And it's, I think it's partially a function of whether or not they're charging for their service or it's a let's try and get as many users as we can and try to figure out a business model to make money later. Yeah, that's it. And that's where superhuman is since they are charging it it does remove some of those doubts but it's still i'm still pretty skeptical and kind of side eyeing them of like uh yeah what what are you gonna you know you're gonna make me switch over and learn all the stuff and it's gonna make me faster and then in six months you're gonna do whatever you're gonna pull a medium and again anything i can think of is is unlikely to happen because i was gonna say you're gonna pull a medium and start charging but they're already charging but it does it just makes me skeptical that they don't have my best interest at heart and what they have is hyper growth at heart and they're going to be willing to sacrifice whether it's my user experience or whatever in order to to further their business and i just i'm just not convinced that you know superhuman or, or i'm not trying to pick on them just in general that's kind of how i view these startups and so I think I will move there eventually. That's probably where I'll wind up. But the fact that you just told me that Boomerang's available in Mailplane, I don't know that I have a reason to move anymore because I just clicked on extensions, I installed it, and it looks like it's working. So that does kind of change change the game for me. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. There's a bunch of other extensions there too. I know you use Zoom, so. <laughs> yeah, well, Boomerang was at the top when I went to extensions. It was literally the first on the list. And I just downloaded it while you were talking. I configured it. And, you know, it looks like I'm all good now, so. 
it's it'll be interesting. I do I like to question my assumptions, and one of my assumptions is that I really want to stick with kind of the interface because I've been I mean I've been using Gmail since I don't know 2006. Is that when it came out? Like I mean I was really early on. It came out before then because I so through Bluetick I can see when my earliest emails were sent and received, and I didn't get into Gmail for it was at least a year or two. So I think it came out in 2003, but my earliest emails from 2005. Okay. And that's where I'm somewhere in there, 2005, 2006. And it's not just, oh, I'm used to it, but like the keyboard shortcuts and the actions, they all make sense. And I'm very, very fast. It's it's like using Vim or using an, you know, an, a quote unquote old editor that people move on from. But when you're really good, you can actually be kind of in the command line the whole time. And I feel like that's how I sync with Gmail. And so if I were to switch over to, because obviously there's like whatever, there's an Outlook mail client or there's there's a bunch of good desktop Mac clients for Gmail. But, you know, the, enough of the paradigms are, wind up being different. And it's not just keyboard shortcuts. It's just the whole, the whole interface. And you're looking in different places for different things that I'm not sure I want to give my productivity that much of a hit, you know, over the course of weeks or months. And, and I'm not just not sure it's worth it to, to relearn a new tool. Right. And that, that's actually what attracted me to Mailbird was because all of the keyboard shortcuts are the same as Gmail. So it was just like, oh, like I can just hit a, I think it's V or something. I honestly don't remember what the shortcuts are. I just do them at this point. But like, you know, adding a label to something or moving it or throwing it to the trash, like those things are all just keyboard shortcuts that I just use. Like I think one of them is control pound or shift pound or something like that. And then there's one V and add a label to it and move and all that stuff. It's just like, it's there and you can just, it's very intuitive, very much like not intuitive, but like the shortcuts are not intuitive. But if once you've learned them, like they just become second nature. And like for the most part, the ones that I use are there and it's just, it's helpful. The only thing I don't like is that in Gmail, I use, I have starred emails and then I have ones that are marked as important and then ones that basically everything else below that. So I have three different sections and it doesn't have that. It only has two. So it's just like, eh, oh, well, I mean, I'll live. I mean, it's not like I'm going to stop using it because of that, but I mean, it was cheap. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just keyboard shortcuts, right? Because I'm sure Superhuman probably duplicated the the, Google, the Gmail ones, but th- there's other things. A little known fact, actually, Mike. Before before I started Drip, I was actually pretty heavily considering building a mobile email client that was all the things, right? That was fast and was this and that. And I remember you and I talked about it. I was like, yeah, this is on my list. And you're like, boy, that's kind of a Silicon Valley play. You're like, how, how are you going to make money at that? And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm struggling with. Is it's not a normal SaaS model. And I thought for a bit of like, well, I should do a, a basically a SaaS email client and again, make it fast and make it do all the things have built on top of Gmail in a way that, that they're not innovating on. And I thought to myself, no one would pay for that. They wouldn't pay the price. You know, I don't want to charge five bucks a month. And what's funny is I think A, that was my bias, right? Because I don't want to pay for an email client. But also it was 2012 and I don't think Gmail had the problems that it has today with the slowness and all that, it didn't have that problem in 2012. So I, I think timing is also a factor, right? It's not not just that I had the idea, but it also, uh, I think you need to be there at the right time and you need to execute on it. I mean, the, the superhuman guys have done a great job as we've heard of years of customer development, you know, in essence, to get to to where they are today. And that that would obviously have been a ton of work to, to get there. It's not just, oh, you had the same idea and the superhuman guys, you know, did it. They, they did a really, really good job of it executed to perfection. 
And that's actually a very odd coincidence that you mentioned those specific things about like the speed because was I think it was about two years before that that they had acquired the business that your co-founder in Tiny Seed, Einar, has. He was building it and it was to make mobile search very fast. And then fast forward a couple of years and it's no longer, their search is no longer dog slow. Yeah, it's a trip. So you wonder if Gmail, you know, in the background, are they like innovating and they're going to basically release something that makes them super fast and that implements some of the things superhuman does like could that's the other thing right is they built on essentially on top of g suite or gmail so they have platform risk right now as an idea like you know gmail or google could feasibly shut them down right it would be a it would be a bad move or an anti-competitive move but we've seen this happen with twitter api restrictions and all that stuff facebook do that wouldn't put it past google and that's a pretty big uh it could be a pretty big issue for superhuman Moving forward, if they become a multi-million dollar business, deca-million-dollar business, who's to say Gmail won't either just implement their features and be like, yep, and it's still free, or screw around with API access and, and that kind of stuff? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm, I've actually been going through a bunch of approval processes with Google. And I don't, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but because I'm, I'm accessing customer information through OAuth, I have to go through this approval process. And they say... You talked about it. Yeah, a couple episodes ago, you mentioned it was pretty cumbersome. Yeah, and I'm still going through that. Like I've, I've sent them a bunch more information. And I'm just kind of waiting now to see like if there's anything else that they need. And I haven't heard anything back for at least a week or two. But, you know, that's certainly something that could happen. But it's it's more of a result of like me just accessing things through IMAP, which I don't know. I don't know how they actually access that data. But if it's through IMAP, then I mean, there's got to be a, a reasonable way to get access to it because there's no way that I could see that Google could say, look, you're nobody can access through IMAP anymore. You have to use OAuth tokens and et cetera. I mean, I, I suppose I could like end of life that access down the road, but they're going to have to wait while people, their, their email clients switch over and add that type of support. And that concludes this episode of Gmail clients for the rest of us. So that was a longer tangent than I thought we would uh, go on, but I think it's still interesting stuff, right? I think all of us struggle with finding the right, well, with, I mean, I, th I think we touched on a couple relevant points of like platform risk about finding the right client. Cause if you're in it so many hours a day, I think it's important stuff and then switching costs and that kind of stuff. Well, with all that said, I think we'll switch over and we'll actually start doing some of these listener questions that so we get them in for before the end of this episode. So the first one comes from Stephen Moon, came in through Twitter, and he said, uh, with so many years of experience behind you, both in the startup space, what would you say were some of your biggest regrets? This is this is a tough one. I gave it some thought in advance of the episode because it's not something, it's not something I think about that much. I tend to make pretty calculated decisions. I tend to take longer to make decisions than than some people. And so as a result, and I try to make it with all the information I have at the time. And if I make a decision with that and it turns out to have a negative outcome, I don't consider it a regret because I did what I thought was best at the time. I don't make many impulsive decisions. And those are the decisions that I would tend to regret are things where I didn't take the time to think it through or I made an emotional decision instead of trying to look at the data and, and making the best decision. But, it, but with that said, I think that something that I regret early on is that I was like, I mean, this is 2005 to maybe 2010. I was too timid. Like I was scared of making people mad. I was, I was too much of a developer to do marketing. I mean, that, that's, that transition actually happened during that time period. But in the early days, even before 2005, I didn't want to market because I considered it, you know, some bad thing. 
SEO AdWords, like taking out ads. I don't know, just all that. And even doing sales, like it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. And I wish that I had gotten there sooner. And eventually I realized, oh, this is valuable. Like if my product provides value, reaching the people, you know, for who it's going to have value for, I think is, is an important thing. I think another thing that I regret is I thought that I could do everything myself early on. And I, frankly, I did everything myself for a while. And then I hit the, hit the ceiling on that. And then I hired contractors and VAs, which worked to a point. So I guess I don't have regrets that I did that, but then, you know, eventually needing, knowing that I needed uh, like a deep network of people, I think has kind of changed my, changed my world and allows me to do things a lot faster and a lot easier than just trying to go it on my own. So these are lessons I learned along the way. And I guess my regret is that I didn't learn them earlier. That tends to be, you know, something that I, th- I think those tend to be my regrets. I have another one, but how about you? You want to weigh in on something? I, I, I think some of mine are similar to yours in such that like they were learning experiences and the one that definitely comes to mind is not really thinking through things before just doing them. I wouldn't say that I was necessarily impulsive in many ways, but I would definitely say that I didn't pause to like look at the big picture enough. So for example, like when I was in college, I did not do very well. And even going back into to high school, like I did very well in high school because it was high school and it was easy to me. But unfortunately, the byproduct of that was I didn't know how to learn things. I just, I either figured it out and just did whatever needed to be done, or I just kind of said, oh, I'll, I'll be able to figure this out. So what would tend to happen is I would leave things to the last minute because I would want to do other other stuff and I wouldn't spend the time to like focus on my studies or actually really try and understand stuff. It's either I could do the problems or I couldn't. And I, I feel like I just, I didn't have a good understanding of how I learned when I got to college. And I really, really struggled when I got to college because of that, because I relied on me just showing up and being in class to understand stuff. And when I didn't, I had a hard time sitting down and actually doing homework or studying because that was just not how I had wired myself. And that took a really long time to break. It took like four or five years to kind of break that habit. And I fortunately did by the time I got to grad school, but it took way longer than it really should have. And it was because I didn't think about the longer term consequences of what those actions could potentially be, but I didn't necessarily know what those consequences would be either. Right. Cause you were like 17, <laughs> you know, but how does that relate? I mean, I think he was asking in terms of startups, like how does that relate to your business, your professional career or does it? It, it does because it, I have to intentionally set aside time to kind of think about the bigger picture. And if I don't, I can easily find myself just, you know, going down the rabbit hole and not thinking about, is this the right thing I should be doing? Is this the most important stuff for me to be spending my time on? And I can easily burn a lot of time doing stuff that actually doesn't move the needle or isn't very important if I'm not very cautious and conscious of that. So it's more of a being aware that that's a, a flaw of mine that I have to keep in mind and intentionally being very intentional about setting aside time to come up and look at the big picture. Cause, and I mean, if you look back and like my days with Auto Shark, like that was a huge problem because I just put my head down and kept going. And I, what I really should have done was taken a few steps back and looked at the bigger picture and been a little bit more objective about stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think you should, you know, knowing that that's your, predisposition, you should ask yourself that now. What what would it look like to take a step back? You know, you don't have to answer that. It's a rhetorical question, but like that's the thing about knowing our strengths and weaknesses is 
I know now that I'm older, I know a lot of my weaknesses. I, I don't know that I know them all, but I, I really tune in when I start saying things that I realize are maybe not 100% true or just an emotional thought or are me just trying to justify my what I, what I feel like I want to do rather than what should be done. And, and those are weaknesses. Um, or when I have negative self-talk or I, I've t- talked about it before, if I don't get enough sleep, I'm like super negative and I'm, I'm almost look like someone who's depressed. I'm unmotivated for that day. I'm unmotivated and I'll just be like, nothing's going to work. This whole thing isn't even going to work. Why are we even doing this? You know? And I mean, I literally have that in my head and I'll always say like, dude, this is a temporary thing. Like you are just in a weird state, go take a nap and I'll come back and I'll feel better about it. But I didn't realize that, you know, until five or 10 years ago. And I think that that's, that's an important thing to know yourself. Yeah. I mean, the way I deal with it now is I do a lot of journaling and I use that to kind of track whether or not I'm making progress on stuff or getting things done that I need to get done because I will write those things down. But, you know, again, that's just like a, a personal productivity hack more than anything else to make sure that I'm staying aware of those things. But I would say that the other major regret I have, and I'm not sure if I label it as a regret, but kind of being under the belief or assumption that I would be youthful forever. (laughs) Um, I've definitely found that like, as I've gotten older, things do not heal nearly as quickly as they used to. And I, I need more sleep than I used to. And just like a lot of stuff with my personal health that I was like, Oh, I'm invincible. You know, I'm 20 some years old. And it's like, Oh yeah, nothing will ever happen to me. And you know, you fast forward 10 or 15 years and it's just like your body starts to give out on you in certain ways. And you're like, huh, that kind of sucks. And there's nothing you can do about it. But Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think my, the other regret I can think of is that I didn't take good enough care of myself while growing drip. Like, you know, there's self-care. It's what's funny is it's the, it's what my wife talks about all the time. Right. I mean, that's what Zen founder is about taking care of yourself. And there was a certain point where I was just bearing the burden of a lot of stuff. I wasn't working on things that I liked, but I knew they had to get done. And it's that exper- it's that recipe for burnout, right? Where I'm capable of doing them, but they don't bring me joy. And I didn't want to interrupt anybody else's day because everybody else was either selling or onboarding or writing code. And that's what needed to push the business forward. And if I pulled anyone else into it, this is a, a like a fallacy. You tell yourself of like, well, I'm just going to grind it out. And the business is growing fast. Everything's working. Why would I screw that up and pull people off and move slower in these other things? And anytime I got budget, I hired a support person or a developer or a, a someone else to move the business forward and, and really should have, I think, made some different decisions there. So yeah, I didn't take good enough care of myself. And I, I did start to you know enter burnout at a certain point. And that, that sucks. And I've done that a couple times in my, well, I've done it a few times in my professional career. And the most recent one was, was during drip. And I think I kind of want to avoid it for the rest of my life if possible, but it takes it because it takes a toll on you and on your relationships is the problem, right? Because you can recover, but if you've, if you've damaged relationships, it takes a while to, to repair those. So moving on to our second question, this one comes from Dick Polipnik, and he says, what do you think of buying a small company that already serves your target customers and building your SaaS idea on top of it? So, so he's saying buying a small company that is not a SaaS company, right? So it's either one-time download software or it's an info product. What do you think he is implying here? I think it could be either one of those. Um, it could also be a services business of some kind. So I wouldn't say like as big as an agency. I mean, I, I think the implication here is that it's, you know, it's a small company. It's probably one person or maybe it's just like, I don't know, uh, like a book or something like that. That seems odd. I don't. I don't think that's it, actually. Yeah, if it's if it's a small consulting agency, 
I wouldn't buy an agency unless I wanted to do agency work because going from agency to product work is hard. Ask anyone who's trying to do it because you have so many things going on. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a well-worn story. It's possible, but it's, it's a slog. So I would not invest money into acquiring an agency. If it was like an ebook or a one-time downloadable software and there was an audience there that you felt like could buy a SaaS or, you know, would be interested in something, it's, it's a pretty direct path to it. I'm not opposed to the idea of it. I think that the concern I have is if you spend this money and let's say it's 30 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand, I mean, it's, it's a chunk of change. And then what if you're wrong? What if now you have this info product that you don't really want to run or you have this one-time download software that you don't really want to maintain and, you, and they don't really want to SaaS because you can't ask them now because you don't have access to the audience. So I would try to, so I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying, how can you prove that hypothesis or disprove that hypothesis without spending the money? You know, can you work with the current owner to, to survey the audience to find out if they do want a SaaS? Or maybe you do, maybe if it was one-time software and you buy it and the SaaS doesn't work out, you're okay with that. One-time software is not terrible, right? I mean, I had done an invoice for years and it was, it was a, great, a great revenue stream. So yeah, I'm not opposed to it, but I do feel like you have to answer a lot of questions in advance. And I would ask, this is kind of a, it's like acquiring yourself into the stair step, which is something that I did and very few people do, but I didn't intend to build SaaS on top of the things I acquired. Those were really just, you know, income revenue streams. So not opposed to it, but I do definitely have some, uh, some questions that I'd want answered before, before doing it. Yeah, I think the piece that is probably the most important is how how do you validate that it is the right move and that those people are going to want to purchase a SaaS? And if there's already people who are purchasing SaaS products in that particular target market that is similar to what it is that you want to build, then great. Like, is this, are you, are you buying it because of the company and what it offers or are you buying it because you want to plug it in and you see it as a, as a new channel that you can tap into because they're offering something that nobody else does in this particular market? So thanks for the question. And the next one that we have is uh, from Daniel Fellows. And he says, a question for you. How do you deal with the loneliness of building your startup? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the reason I started my blog back in 2005 was the loneliness of trying to do something that I didn't know if anyone else was doing it. Because I didn't know of any other like single founder software startups that weren't raising funding. There was nobody. And I started blogging to try to find other people. And so that then turned into my book and then this podcast and microconf. And so I deal with the loneliness of it by having this community. You know, and whether I had been part of building it like we have been or whether I just became a part of it later, I rely on this community as much as anyone to to keep me from feeling that loneliness. So that is a reason. I mean, we do the podcast for a number of reasons, but I think part of it is to be able to talk about this stuff both with you and with the audience and to get questions and comments and all that stuff is helpful. Um, going to microconf basically three times a year in essence is a big one for me. And I always get a bump from there, realizing that there are a bunch of other people doing this with us on, on their own, but with us. And then of course, mastermind groups. That's been like a huge thing. Obviously I've been a proponent of for years and years. That gives you that touch point every other week or however often you do it to know that there are people that are, that are in your corner recently, as we've talked about, like I didn't do this when I was growing startups because I was so focused on, you know, grinding it out day to day, but even finding founders, entrepreneurs locally, Sherry's been doing a good job of that here in Minneapolis of, of finding local entrepreneurs and having them over for dinner once a month. And we'll just get two couples 
over here and and have nice dinner. And sometimes the conversation involves work and other times it doesn't, but just having that shared ethos of being a founder makes the conversation super interesting and cool. How about you? I agree with everything you said. The one other thing that I would add is finding something that is outside of your business where you can use to socialize with other people that is not work or business related. I think that's something that I, I definitely neglected that early on in my career where it was just I worked all the time. And beyond that, I didn't do much else. Like I didn't really have a life outside of the business. And I think that's probably, I wouldn't say it's a huge regret, but it's definitely something that I probably should have done a little bit differently if I were really thinking about it or thinking about the future. But, you know, I I think I'm definitely on the right track there these days, but it's something I would probably emphasize a lot more if I were to go back and, and do things over again, because I feel like having time away from your business where you're not thinking about it and you're not talking to people who are also running their own businesses is helpful just as a way to recharge. Because if you're spending all of your time thinking about it, it starts to creep into places where it really shouldn't. Like when you're trying to sleep at night and you know you toss it and turn it just because you've got business on your mind at all times. And there's always interesting problems, but it's helpful to have something else that is completely distracting and completely irrelevant to your business that you can do that will take your mind off of it. And I find a lot of times that there are problems that I'm working on where the solution just comes to me very, very quickly if I'm not thinking about it. Yeah, it's it's a good point. It's something I didn't do until the last two, three years, actually, frankly, till we, I, I believe, I was into, I was doing some tabletop gaming before that, but uh, before the, at the exit in 2016, but I really kind of ramped it up after that. And so that's something that I've enjoyed having as a hobby. I really neglected my hobbies for a decade plus, And I don't, I don't regret that actually. I don't wish that I had done more hobbies because I did take that time and I got stuff done. Like I was the reason I was able to put out as much content as I, you know, as I did and run all the multiple things is I was thinking about them a lot, but you know, eventually that can take a toll on you. And uh, so I think having maybe one hobby that's not super, super time consuming, I think can be helpful. But since I didn't do it, that's not something I can necessarily recommend. You know, I know it's, it's best practice, but I think the other stuff I talked about with masterminds and such is that's what I did. So that's what I feel better about telling people with a straight face, like not to just do what I say, not as I do, but like you can do it as I do. And I think it's to keep, keep from being lonely. And I think for our last question of the day, we're going to take one from Graham Blake. And he says, as a single founder whose business has succeeded, I find I have less time to do the things that made it succeed. I've delegated a fair bit, but the management of a bunch of small areas reduces the time I have to deep dive on stuff. How do you organize things so you can still do the most valuable work while keeping the machine running smoothly? My biggest difficulties are that most of my valuable work involves deep focus, which is generally writing or video production. And I have to give feedback on work that is being done for me. But if I ignore this for too long, it creates bottlenecks. Yeah, this is a hard one, right? It's it's the maker schedule versus the manager schedule from Paul Graham's writings where the, the manager is interruptive and you're responding and you're trying to keep people going. And the maker is where you need deep focus. And trying to be both of those is very, very hard. I, I don't know that there's there's a great answer to it other than to hire someone to manage all the little ins and outs so that you are no longer a manager because being trying to be both is hard. So there's really two solutions here. Step away from the making, hire someone to do that, or step away from the managing and hire someone to do that. I realize neither of those is easy nor straightforward, but we're entrepreneurs. We do things that are not easy or straightforward. So that's what I would look to do longer term. If I looked out six months or a year, 
I would look to get completely out of one of those or the other. And you need to ask yourself which, you know, which you want to do. I mean, we're bootstrappers. You can do what, what it is that you want to do. That's why we design these businesses around us and then figure out a path to get there. And it's not, it may not be hire one person to manage everyone right from the start. Maybe it's hire someone with enough skill that they can manage part of your team, you know, or part of the contractors or whatever, but you need to remove yourself from the deep dives if you don't want to be doing that, or you need to allow yourself to deep dive if you want to. Yeah, I think there's a, it's it's really hard to kind of cross that line there because there's a, there's a chasm between like what you're what you're looking for from people versus what you're actually getting and like until you get to a certain scale like you it's hard to put people in there if you can't afford to hire managers for example. So I think that getting to the point where you've gone in one direction or the other is the, the difficult choice that people the most people have in front of them. I'm sure you've run into this in the past where you've got something that you've outsourced to someone and then they come back with it, but you still need to spend time going through it and looking at it making sure that everything's right. And I mean, really the only short-term solution I see for that is kind of time blocking in some way, shape or form so that you are not trying to do too much context switching between the creative time versus that management time. Because if you're trying to slot it in on a daily basis, it's just not going to work. I've found that you know, if I allocate time for it once or twice a week or something like that, maybe Tuesdays and Fridays or something along those lines, you can get more done because you're not context switching between those things as much. And then anything else that comes up, you have to be diligent about making sure that it's like those questions don't come into a channel where it's going to be disruptive to you. So like I was constantly telling people, hey, don't send me a Slack message. Send me an email and I will review it when I get it. Otherwise, that Slack message is going to be disruptive for me. It's going to screw up my schedule of being able to work on this stuff. And like you just have to be diligent about making sure that the expectations are that you will review stuff on Friday or and you'll go over it with them on Tuesday, for example. And that way you can email them, say, this is what my thinking is, or this is what my, uh, here's a short video of what my thoughts are. That's something else I would probably recommend is trying to cut down on the synchronized time that you have to spend with people. Like if you can do a, a short recording of it and send it to them as feedback versus getting on a call with them. So you both have to be available because I find that calls tend to be disruptive just because if it's 20 minutes or half an hour before the call, you're really hesitant to start on anything that has any level of involvement because you know you've got a call coming up and you don't want to have to stop. So it's it's about being conscious of where your time is going to be wasted and, and meetings are going to waste like half an hour of your time before and after the call. Yeah, those are all good points. And I really want to kind of highlight the one of just changing the expectation of communication and saying, by default, use email because it's asynchronous. By default, Let's not schedule calls. Maybe use Voxer where you can kind of leave a voicemail and go back and forth on that and then turn off alerts and check it twice a day or something. But if stuff is urgent, then you can text me or Slack me and interrupt me. If it's, if it's super urgent and you are blocked and you need an answer within, let's say, 10 or 15 minutes, then use an interruptive medium. But if not, don't just use Slack for everything. And that was that's always when I would onboard new people anytime, actually, even with tiny seed, with drip, with, with whatever, that's, that's my thing is like, let's not slack by default. This is dumb, you know, or let's not text by default. I don't need to be interrupted and you're, and you're interrupting what I'm trying to do. So that could be a first step, you know, but we just don't know if, if his team is using slack for everything. And so it's just throwing him into a loop or if he can say, Hey, everybody, I'm going DND, do not disturb for the next two hours. I will not get back to you. If the building is burning down, and the site is completely down, then break my D&D. Otherwise, do not 
expect a response. And frankly, if, if you're a software or video production company, that should be the default. I think two or three hours every morning, two or three hours every afternoon, everyone should be doing that. Now, that doesn't work if you're a manager and you have 10 people, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I get it. But that should be the default. And then you should be able to break that rule if you have a specific role or if you have, you know, a specific week where you need a lot of collaboration or whatever. Ooh, I can't believe uh, my voice at a certain point there I thought was not going to make it through this episode. But um, I'm glad you uh, were talking at points because it gave me a chance to kind of recharge it. I'm feeling good, man. <laughs> <laughs> but we answered a bunch of listener questions today. And if you have a question for us, you can call them into our voicemail number at 888-801-9690. And voicemails always go to the top of the stack, unless I screw up and forget to move them there. But uh, you can also email us. You can just attach or you know send us a Dropbox link to a, an audio file, or you can do the old-fashioned and just send us some text to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Downcast, and all the other good ones. Just search for startups. We tend to be in the top few. And you can visit startupsfortherestofus.com to see a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.